I'd like to encourage you to open your Bibles this morning, Gospel According to Mark, Chapter 3. Um, for the benefit of our visitors, or those that have just been gone for a while, we are in Mark's Gospel, um, trying to learn about the person and character of our Savior, our goal to have him his character fashioned in us that we might show his character to the world or that he might show his character through us to the world. And to that end, we're looking at Mark's gospel. You know, Abraham Lincoln said some incredible stuff and he wrote some incredible things. So much of what he said and what he wrote is woven into our, the very psyche of our nation. One of the things that he said that I wasn't aware of until recently was this. He said, you can tell the greatness of a man by what makes him angry. And that's something you can just kind of think about, mull on for a few moments. What You can tell the greatness of a man by what makes him angry. So we're studying in Mark's gospel about the nature of our Lord, trying to understand as much as we can. And we've talked about, or we've seen rather, his compassion, numerous examples of his compassion, of his power, of his authority, of his greatness, the incredible blending of, of the divine and the human in, in one being. We've seen some pretty incredible stuff. Um, but this morning we're going to see something new. And that's in Mark chapter 3, beginning in the first verse. And it reads this way. And he, that is Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, rise and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and began to take counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as we look to your word, Father, our, hearts, our goal, our heart's desire is to see Jesus, see our Lord, understand his character, his nature, his being, Father, that it might be fashioned in us. Father, we can't do that on our own. We need the work of your Spirit to do that. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to our hearts and minds this morning. And then, in Father, the unfolding of your word, you would speak to us. We want to hear from you, Father, not the thoughts of man. We want the Lord to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus got angry. I mean, really, really angry. And if we can take a cue from Abraham Lincoln, understanding exactly what it was that made him so angry, we can understand the measure or a measure of his greatness. And so to that end this morning, I'd like to first begin by just taking a quick overall look at the text, see what's going on there, and then look more carefully at some of the details of the text, try to understand what's going on, and then finally ask that question, what does this all mean to us in our understanding? So let's first look at the passage as a whole. Jesus is still in the north. His ministry is still starting. It's fairly early. And we're not told exactly where this happens. It's somewhere in Galilee, probably near Capernaum. And we read in verse 1 that he enters into a synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand. 
Now that same word for withered is the one that's used several chapters later to describe that fig tree. If you remember that account, the disciples are walking along and they see a fig tree and Jesus is hungry and he, they go look at the fig tree. And it's interesting, they have to go look at the fig tree. That'll come back in a moment. And, and there's no figs on it. And at the point of Jesus' ministry that he's at there, he's under a tremendous amount of stress, much different situation there. But Jesus says to the fig tree, may nobody ever eat from you again. Well, they walk by, you know, just a day or so later, Again, they're a distance from the tree. The path was evidently a, a good ways away from the tree. And the disciples looking at the fig tree note that it's withered. It's dried up. It's shriveled. And the change in the fig tree is sufficient that they could see it from a distance. So that gives us an idea of what this word withered means. This poor man's hand isn't simply lame or limp or paralyzed. It is actually atrophied. It's shriveled. This man is living with a shriveled hand, right? Now, the Pharisees are there. We're told this in the second verse, and they're watching him. And, and the grammar is pretty clear. This is a continual process. They are keeping an eye on him. They're observing Jesus. And a couple different things about that. First of all, their, 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 their perspective right now or what they're looking for is very specific. They're looking at him to see if he will heal on the Sabbath. It, they're not looking to see if he can heal. I guess by this point in Jesus' ministry, that's a given. They know that he can. The question is, will he do it? Will he actually heal on the Sabbath day? And we're also told that they're doing it in order to accuse him. And I hope you notice the shift that's taken place in Mark's account. They're no longer, you know, doing research trying to discover who this guy Jesus is. They're no longer following up on the reports they've gotten. Now they're at the point, they're evidently confident that, yeah, Jesus can heal if he wants to. Now they're at a point where they're deliberately trying to gather evidence against him. It's a legal term. They're collecting testimony or evidence that they can use to accuse him. This has gone beyond some honest question about who Jesus is. Now they're looking to bring charges against him, right? That's the second verse. The third verse, Jesus observing this, tells the man to come forward. Now the typical synagogue arrangement would have been people sitting on the outer walls, a person right in the center reading from the scroll or whoever was speaking, but there's an open area in the middle. And Jesus would have called this open man right into that middle area. And what's significant about that, if you recall so many times when Jesus healed people, what did he tell them? Don't tell anybody. Try to sneak out of here. Don't draw attention to yourself. Just keep it on the down low. Here he goes 180 degrees away from that. He brings this man right in the center where everybody can see him. What is going to happen is something Jesus wants to be seen. He wants there to be some attention focused on what happens next. So he brings the man front and center. And as the man is standing there, he asks the question, and he asks the question of everyone, most especially these Pharisees. He says in verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, to save a life, or to kill? Now note, he's already addressed that question, right? Isn't that a new question? We just dealt with this, the whole thing in the previous chapter about the disciples going through the cornfield and gathering you know, ears of corn, threshing them in their hands. so they can, They've already dealt with that. That's been established that doing good is fine on the Sabbath. 
And that whole discussion, remember Jesus talked about the, that whole Pharisaical discussion that they were already familiar with about you have an animal falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Don't you get it out? You don't leave the poor thing there. So the answer to the question is already known. What Jesus is doing by asking this question is focusing the discussion on the condition of the heart of the people present. Right? Is it lawful? And their response is silence. And this isn't a silence like, you know, when you're asked an embarrassing question, you kind of look down, you, you know, shuffle your feet a little. No, this is like a deafening silence. This is like absolute silence. That eerie silence that almost makes you uncareful. And it was a prolonged silence. Jesus waited. He gave them ample opportunity to speak, and they didn't. They know the answer. It's been clear, yes, they can do well on the Sabbath, but they're not willing to acknowledge it because that isn't their interest. Their interest is to accuse him. Verse 5, after looking around with anger and grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And as the man did, his hand was healed. Now the grammar would suggest his hand was actually healed before he even extended it. At some point in this whole discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees and the silence that filled the air, the man's hand was healed. So when he extended it, it was completely whole. I think it's significant about that healing, the healing of a shriveled hand. How do we all react when you, maybe you're at a some kind of a church service, or maybe you're watching it on television, and somebody's going to, you know, he gets a healing ministry, and you see a healing take place, what's the question you ask? Is that real or is it bogus, right? Now, up until now, you look at the kind of healings Jesus has done, right? And I'm not suggesting that they weren't, but I'm saying human reaction when we see something like that is to go, eh. The guy that was, you know, the paralytic that they lowered down, right? Can you fake that? I mean, a guy could like lay on a pallet and they could, doot, 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 and then the guy could get up. You could fake that, right? right? Even somebody like blind, you maybe pull that one off. But this guy's hand is physically atrophied. You can't fake that. And it's suddenly whole and functional. And you can't fake that. This is an undeniable one. There's no room. For anything other than, yeah, he's healed. And this undeniable miracle is set right before them, and now they have to deal with it. He extends his hand. The Pharisee's response is to go out and conspire, if you will, with a group called the Herodians about Jesus' destruction. Now, first off... Um, they meet with this group called the Herodians. Now, that's not a word you see a lot in the New Testament. It's not a particularly large group, not a particularly well-known group. All we can really be sure is they were somehow allied with Herod, who was the king of the Jews. Not the lawful king. He wasn't even Jewish, but he had connived his way to rule. And so a group associated with him would likely have been thinking like him, which is to say aligned with Jewish thinking and at the same time aligned with Greek thinking because that was Herod's background. Not ethnically Greek, but aligned with Greek thinking, what we refer to as the Hellenization of the Jewish nation, where the Jewish way of thinking and the Jewish way of living had been polluted by the filtering in and the mingling with Greek thinking. The Herodians were fully on board with that. 
which means it would be really weird for the Pharisees. You know, last week we saw the Pharisees lined up with the disciples of John the Baptist. Now they're lined up with the Herodians, which is even weirder, right? But they're plotting together. This is a conscious, deliberate effort on their part to destroy Jesus. Now let's talk about that word just a little bit. It's a very specific word. It's only used here. It doesn't mean to simply kill. If they just wanted to kill Jesus, that word was available. If they wanted to run him off, that was available. But they use this word, and it's a, it's a very meaning-laden word. It means to destroy such as to make as though you never existed. It, it's, it's, it's a very specific word that Mark uses here. It's bound up in the whole philosophy of the language and the whole understanding of matter. They want to make it as though Jesus never existed. As though the very molecules that made up his being, his essence, were just like scattered to the cosmos. It's a powerful, powerful thing that, that Mark describes them trying to do. As I was thinking about this, I thought about a moment in my childhood, which I hadn't thought about for an awful long time. Uh, being raised in a Greek home, one of the things we did that was really fun, we got two Easter's. You know, the Greeks do their Easter after everybody else's, so you get two, which is really fun. And the Greeks in L.A. would go out to the fairgrounds, and I, I, have, no, I have no idea how many Greeks there were in L.A., but there were a lot. And most would show up at the fairgrounds, and we'd have zuvlaki and a grand time and music and stuff. But when I was like five or six, I had a real bad experience. Some of these little Greek kids that were bigger than me, and they, they certainly spoke Greek better than me because I didn't speak any at the time. They were really picking on me and giving me a bad time, and they were calling me names. So I went around to my dad, and I said, Dad, they're calling me names. What can I say back to them? Well, he didn't want to teach me the words they were using. I would have to learn those later on my own, which I did. Um, but Dad said to me, you do this, Johnny. You tell them, and I didn't know why this was important. Or I, had, I didn't learn until later why this part was important. He says, you tell them, not this. It's not in the Bible. Nazis. So I went back where I was playing, and these kids showed up, and they went, Nazis, and they all cried and ran away. I went, wow, that was cool. I wonder what I just said. So I went back, and I said, Dad, what did I say to them? And he said, Nazis means disappear. You're kidding me. That is what shook them up so bad and sent them fleeing. Yeah, because it, it, had this, it was like a modern version of the word we see here. It meant, I want, and this, by the way, meant, I think I put a curse on them is what it was. Um, yeah, <laughs> didn't intend to. Um, I haven't repented of that because I just remembered it recently. Um, I probably should. Um, that meant I want it to be as though your very essence is scattered to the cosmos not so that your name's on a gravestone someplace, but though you never existed. Your essence is just scattered. Well, that's what, what the Pharisees are trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to reduce him as though he, he never existed. No one would ever attach anything to his name. So the Pharisees have got some pretty harsh stuff in mind for Jesus. Okay? In Luke's description of this event, Luke chapter 11, he describes the Pharisees as being literally out of their mind with rage, mindless with rage, totally out of control, totally beyond rational thought. That's their reaction 
to the event that just occurred. So, so what's the point that we glean from all this other than Jesus' ability to heal? Well, as we have noted, the purpose of the gospel is to show us Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he continues to do, how that happens. So to this point, we've seen a tremendous amount about Jesus. We've seen his identity affirmed at his baptism when the Father said, you are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased. That we've established. We've seen his compassion. It's been consistent. Back to the first chapter where again and again, Jesus acted with compassion towards people. We've seen his authority in word and in deed. We've seen his authority in calling the disciples, casting out diseases, casting out demonic powers, his authority in speaking healing and in speaking forgiveness. What a powerful thing to speak authoritatively, the word of forgiveness. Affirming his authority with regard to the biblical text, he could say, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Affirming his authority even over the biblical text, right? Now we see something different about his character we see that Jesus could get really, really hot, really angry. Um, there's two words that are most commonly used in the New Testament to describe anger. Um, they're both used to describe man and God. They both have a positive and a negative connotation. The first one is the word thimos. And I love that word, thimos. One that's easy to say, thimos. It's a very colorful word. I mean, if you, you know, if you say, I'm full of demos, it sounds like I want to punch somebody, right? It's true, right? It actually comes right into English. Themos comes into English as thermal. It has to do with heat, thermometer, all the different words for heat. And that's literally what it means. It actually speaks of that life source within us, that energy within, a, within life itself that is identified with heat. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, I hope not, but if you ever have had the experience of approaching a deceased body that you weren't sure they were deceased, and you touch them and they feel cold, your immediate reaction is to pull your hand back. It just feels wrong. Human beings aren't supposed to be cold. And, and the chill that is there is, is, is a demonstrable evidence that life has left, and that is disturbing to our very being. So this idea of themos or heat is part of our natural makeup. But when something happens that we, are, are, we become angry over, it's offensive to us or it's frightening to us, that themos starts to rise and the temperature goes up, and we think in those terms. We, you know, we use an expression that you know, somebody was hot with anger, and we don't think anything of it. That just makes sense, right? Right? Or how about this one? You got a couple people and they're both getting kind of hot, and somebody says, Why don't we just you know, back off and let things cool down a little bit? Or we say, you know, there was a real bad thing going on, but thankfully cooler heads prevail. So we have an idea resonates with our thinking, the themos, this life energy that begins to rise up when there's something wrong that results in anger. Well, that's the first one. The other one. Uh, which is actually the word used here, but I, I spoke about themos for a reason. I'll come back to it. And it also, this other word also comes into English in a very colorful way. It's the word ogri. Ogri. Which, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know where this is going, right? It's where our English word ogre comes from, right? Now, and if, you, and if, you, if you've seen any of the depictions, you know, like, for example, Lord of the Rings, of an ogre, they're like kind of humanoid, but distorted. And that's what it's all about. When anger is so powerful that it actually 
changes who we are. It can even change us physically. Anger rises to that level. Some of you that may remember, I think it's been a year or so, we were ta- I was talking about anger, you know, the, how, how anger is really destructive, and we talked about the puffer fish. How many remember that one, the puffer fish? That extraordinary little creature that when it gets angry or upset, it inflates, right? And if you remember, if you were here, uh, the people that are like experts in keeping tropical fish had put out a warning to people that had puffer fish not to do that to your puffer fish, right? Because what causes the puffer fish to inflate is, is a neurotoxin. That, I mean, it'll like kill you. It'll like kill you. It's really, really powerful, right? But, and when the puffer fish is disturbed, it's something in its body, some gland or something, releases this neurotoxin, and it makes the little guy inflate, right? Well, the, the puffer fish is not an immunity to it. It's a resistance to it. So when they inflate, it doesn't kill them, right? That wears off. And that's why the people that are experts in tropical fish said, don't be doing that. You know, your friends come over, you want to entertain them, you tap the glass, and your fish inflates. Don't do that. Because if it happens enough times, the puffer fish's resistance wears off, and he dies. Right? So don't do that. Right? Well, that's the whole idea of what anger, that's what we talked about. How anger will do that to you, it actually will, you know, inside, internally, it's destructive. And we might get away with it for a while, but if we don't keep it under control, if we don't deal with those issues, they will eat us alive from the inside out, like, like a puffer fish. So don't do that. Keep your anger under control. Well, that's this word that is used. It means to inflate, right? Well, if you compare the two words, they're not that much difference. But, but when you get into the real nitty-gritty of it, themos is that thing inside of us that offends us, that makes us angry. It's wrong. And so the temperature begins to rise. Ogre is when it crosses the line and it's manifested in our behavior or in our very being. It actually takes over who we are. And the veins in our neck start sticking out and our face turns red and we become somebody different. Right? So um, put yourself in the disciples' position for a moment. You've seen a lot of things of Jesus. You've seen him act in compassion. You've seen him care for people. You've seen him extend forgiveness to those that you thought were unforgivable. You've seen him minister to those that you thought were beyond ministry. You have seen his love for humanity made manifest. And now he's standing in front of you, and his eyes are filled with a burning rage, such that he could easily destroy something or someone. This word that's used to describe Jesus as, as the verse goes on, it's because he was grieved. There was something in that moment that was grievous to his heart. It's only used here in the New Testament, but it is used twice in the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which provides us like a dictionary of how these words were used. Psalm 69, verse 20 uses it. Reproach, David writes, has broken my heart, and I am sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I found none. David is overwhelmed with his own sin and the sin of his nation, and he doesn't know what to do. And he's looking for somebody to stand with him, and all he sees is the hardness of hearts. No one will stand with him, and he is overwhelmed with grief. This is the same grief that Jesus experienced. The hardness 
of the Pharisees' hearts. It was one thing when they didn't believe that he could heal. Now they can't deny that he can heal, but they're hoping that he doesn't, because if he does, it's a violation of Sabbath. They're more worried about keeping the details of the Levitical law and the Sabbath than they are in seeing that this man who's lived his entire life with a hand he could not use, crippled, that he be healed. It's grievous to him. It helps us, I think, to look at what happens next. The Pharisees go out, and as I said, they meet with people who um, they'd probably not rather be with, but they're the best ones to work with if they want to destroy Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, in verse 7, I love this, he withdraws to the sea. He doesn't just leave. He removes himself from the situation, and he walks down to the beach. He's going to cool off, give himself a chance to put some space between himself and the There's really good wisdom there in knowing how to respond to anger. Jesus goes down to the sea. There's a couple of things we can include. First of all, I just said, Jesus gives us a really good example how to handle even righteous anger. Notice he doesn't just say, because his anger is righteous, and if it's Jesus' anger, it's righteous anger. Therefore, boomo, lightning. So much for those Pharisees. What did he say on the cross? I can call on my father. He'll send down legions of angels to take care of this problem, but he doesn't. Even though his anger was righteous, he kept it in check. So we, we have, again, a good example of how Jesus could handle even righteous anger. But far more importantly, especially if we look at this from the perspective of the disciples who are still standing around going, what in the world was that all about? Is a moment to recognize with whom we do business with whom we do business. In this case, Jesus deals with his anger by withdrawing so that it can subside. There's a point future to this where he will not. The book of Scripture, where we most often read of Jesus Themos and his ogre is Revelation. Because in that setting, he will not withdraw and let his anger subside. He will give it full vent. The anger of a righteous God, denied by those who should have known and who knew better, will be given full and complete vent. The wrath of the Almighty. But I think even more important than that is simply to note that when we see Jesus, we see God, and we see God in his complete and full picture. You know, I talk to so many people, and probably true of all of us, maybe it's just more pronounced with some than others, and we have this very much partial picture of Jesus and of the Father as well. Some see him in this angry, wrathful, waiting for us to mess up so he can slap us upside the head. That's the only picture Jesus they have. And that's not a complete picture. Equally incomplete, though, is the picture that sees God as so in love and so compassionate and so full of all that goodness that he would never exercise his wrath. That's incomplete, too. What ties those two ideas together? And of course, we've already seen it. We got for every time we read about God's wrath, we read about His love and compassion and goodness a whole lot more. That's a much much bigger part of the picture. But we have to have both pieces there. 
And the wrath that we see is a wrath that grows out of not just a violation of a law, but a violation of our humanity. It was because the Pharisees were more interested in whether or not Jesus honored or dishonored Sabbath than this poor man with a withered hand was healed to go out and live a whole life. That is what caused his wrath to rise up. It was sin against decency and the humanity of Jesus himself. But we have to have a picture of, of our God, and that's why we're talking, in, that's why we're reading Mark, while we're studying Mark, to get a full and complete picture of who our Jesus is, who our Savior is. One of the most depressing things for me, I'll end with this, depressing not for myself, but for others, is I, I hear people say, you know, I would believe in God, but. And then they name this like one character of God they can't agree with. And I always think, well, so there's a part of God that offends you. Um, but if he's God, whose problem is that? His or yours? Right? Even if, even if there's something, and I'm not saying I've always walked in absolute peace and harmony and wondrous joy as I experienced God over the last several decades, there have been any number of times I was just flat not happy with the God I served. But a certain question kept coming back to me like, so what? He's still God. He's the one in the equation who is eternal. He is the one in the equation that's all-powerful. He's the one who in the equation makes all the final decisions. If there's something about his character I'm not really cool with, I think I'm the one that needs to deal with it. I need to deal with my perspective. And that's why it's so important to get, put every effort humanly possible and even then reliance upon the Holy Spirit to learn all we can of his character. Because sure enough, every time something happens in my walk with the Lord that leads me disappointed or frustrated or angry, given time, given enough waiting and seeking, I come to understand he was right after all. He is right every time after all. So I like to think of those disciples walking out of that room, scratching their head, asking themselves, what in the world was that all about? As simply understanding a little bit more of the Jesus they served. And that's our goal. Each day, each week, understand a little bit more of the Jesus we serve. Father, we thank you, Lord. Father, there's so much in your word that gives us so much hope and confidence, Lord. Father, in a few weeks, we're going to go up to a Government Peak site. We're going to celebrate the resurrection, Lord. And that's going to be a reminder for us that the question of exactly who Jesus is has been settled once and for all. He is the Son of God. He did die upon a cross, and he has risen, and he reigns in eternity, Father. We know that because of an empty grave, Lord. But, Father, that leaves us in our, in our walk, in our daily walk, with so much yet to learn, Father, of who he is. And, Father, we don't want to fall in the trap of trying to confine Jesus to who we want him to be. 
Father, we want to come to a place where more and more with each passing day, we understand Jesus for who he is. We understand your son for who he is, Father. What a beautiful thing that is when we come to understand, even if it's just a little bit more than the day before, who Jesus is. If that's a new understanding of, of his love, we thank you for that, Father. If that's a new understanding of his righteousness, we thank you for that. And on occasions when we even get a, a glimpse of the righteous indignation that is his anger against the ungodliness and the hardness of the human heart, Father, we want to thank you for that as well because it equips us better to follow you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.